Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag FashionCulture. Who would have thought it? 50 years ago in 1969, the museum at FIT was founded. At that time, it was called the Design Laboratory and Galleries at FIT. Initially, just the Design Laboratory. The galleries were built several years later. But from the beginning, with the first director, Robert Riley, there was very active collecting of objects for the permanent collection, and also the beginnings of exhibitions. Although the, the first one we identified wasn't really a museum exhibition, because the building wasn't built. It was a live fashion show. And you'll have to remember back in 1971, it was okay to put vintage dresses on living bodies. And Robert Riley was all in favor of that. Uh, but he was a great publicist, and he got the news about doing a show about Adrian, the famous couturier and Hollywood costumier. And he got a call from some executives at MGM who said, oh, we hear you're doing something on Adrian. Would you like all these costumes that Garbo and people like that wore? And so the answer to that would be yes. So he got this amazing gift of MGM costumes. And then he went on doing also additional research, going to Paris and contacting people. For, I went through the, um, the archives of letters. And at one point, he wrote to a woman saying, oh, you know, dear madam, your mother was a great client of Couturier's. How about I come visit you at your chateau in Normandy and uh, see if you have any of her dresses in the attic? And the woman writes back and goes, oh, we don't have any of mommy's dresses, but come and visit anyway. And then, of course, he finds these amazing couture dresses, which are then quickly donated to his uh, nascent museum. Another point on one vacation, he went over and he met the widow of Paul Poiret. And he came back very excited and said to his little staff, we're going to do an exhibition of Paul Poiret. And they all said, who? Because Poiret, for all that he's so famous now as a revolutionary in fashion, had been forgotten then. He died in poverty in the 30s. And so Robert Riley put together an amazing exhibition. This is a vintage installation photograph. At that point, the building on 7th and 27th had been built. He borrowed from museums and collectors in France, in America. He acquired things for the museum at FIT, and he did the first Paul Poiret King of Fashion show. Bill Cunningham was astonished and thrilled with the uh, exhibition mise-en-scene and wrote about it enthusiastically. And you can see it is quite advanced. This was only in 1975 or six. Another image of, from the Paul Poiret exhibition. With our own uh, exhibitionism, 50 years of the museum at FIT, we looked through the records of the more than 200 fashion exhibitions that had been put on uh, over the years. And we chose 33 of the most important and influential that we still had objects from. Because some of the exhibitions were all borrowed, but others, the early directors, were very conscious of trying to build the collection as well as having exhibitions. So another important early one 
was Givenchy. This was, I believe, 1982, which was a year before Diana Vreeland did the Yves Saint Laurent show at the Metropolitan Museum. And as you all know, that caused a huge crisis there with critics saying it was like bringing General Motors into the halls of a museum to hawk their products, that it was commerce soiling the sacred halls of art. And so for decades afterwards, the Costume Institute was not allowed to do exhibitions of a single living designer. There was no such fuss, of course, about FIT doing an exhibition about Givenchy because we were a fashion school and already deeply embroiled in the fashion system. Uh, so there was an exhibition. You can see again the illustration from um, the original exhibition. There was also a live fashion show. There was a gala dinner that Audrey Hepburn chaired. And there was a line of clothes in conjunction with Bloomingdale's. So it was a really big, elaborate production. Then in the 1980s, there was an amazing triumvirate, Laura Sinderbrand, Richard Martin, and Harold Coda. And they did so many exhibitions. I'm only going to focus on two of them, which were particularly important. The first one was Three Women, which looked at Madeleine Viennet, that dress is shown here, um, Claire McArdle, and Ray Kawakubo of Comme des Garçons. And I think it was a, an interview with Laura Cinderbrand. She said she couldn't remember who exactly had come up with the idea, but the three of them were talking and saying how they were so surprised students hadn't heard of Madeleine Viennet or even Claire McArdle. And they said, but these women were like the Rei Kawakubo of their day. They were women who transformed fashion. So they got the idea of doing three women. As you can see from this, the initial room, which had V&A and McArdle, was fairly traditionally mounted. But then the larger inner room, they worked closely with Rei Kawakubo and her architect to create a very radical installation. Remember, this is back in 87 here, where all of the mannequins, flat-footed mannequins, were on the floor, and you could walk all around them, get very close to them. It was a really striking and innovative installation, and a kind of a brilliant idea, which inspired me personally to research and write my book, Women of Fashion, 20th Century Designers, to see when and why women created clothes that were radically new and liberating for other women. Then probably the most famous show of the 80s was Fashion and Surrealism, which was an incredible tour de force. Those of you who knew Richard Martin will remember how he was really adamant about trying to promote the idea that fashion was art, or as he said, at least it was a part of visual culture that deserved the kind of respect and serious study that art received. So he put they put together this show, which included uh, surrealist paintings, as well as a wide range of garments and accessories. Some borrowed, like the lobster dress, others like the Charles James and the Antonia Lopez uh, from FIT's collections. Richard wrote a book, which I think is still in print after all these years, talking about how metamorphosis and body imagery was so crucial both to fashion and to surrealism. You can see here, on the, closer to me, another installation shot from the original exhibition. And then on the far side, you can see how we kind of condensed uh, 
an enormous exhibition into a, a small vignette with three garments, two accessories, and one image, which is basically what we were trying to do with the exhibition. We took anywhere from two to five or six objects and created a sort of something like a scene which would evoke the original exhibition. When I came to the museum in 97, one of my first shows in 99 was China Chic, East Meets West, which looked at the influence of um, Western fashion, sorry, the influence of Chinese dress on Western fashion, but also the influence of Western fashion on Chinese dress. So that I wanted to emphasize that it was a two-way progress and that fashion is not simply something which is Western. So, the, for example, the cheap house, that's not traditional Chinese dress. That's a really brilliant modern fusion form which takes in Manchu women's dress, Chinese men's dress, and Western women's fashion. So here again, we just did a very small uh, vignette to try and give a sense of what the original show was like. But this was one of what came to be many, many different shows which looked at areas of the world and whether cities or countries in terms of their relationship to fashion. Corsets, as many of you know, is how I first became interested in fashion history and fashion theory. And my show, The Corset Fashioning the Body, was the result of years and years of work. It was hugely fun to put on we did an entire room tracing the development of the corset and then a larger room which also looked at the influence of corsetry on modern and contemporary fashion. So here, for example, you see a Belle Epoque corset next to uh, a Lacroix haute couture evening dress which has a bodice which is in fact a corset created by Mr. Pearl, the famous tight lacer and corsetier. A show that I think Richard Martin would have liked a lot was London Fashion, which won the first Richard Martin Award for uh, costume exhibitions from the Costume Society of America. Back then, it was much easier to do shows with houses. I mean, we wrote to all of these famous designers, McQueen and Chilion and Westwood, and the clothes just arrived. I mean, sometimes with the McQueen things, there would be a thud and then a FedEx package would be tossed on my desk and there would be the dress. And I'm sort of like, wow. Uh, now, of course, it's very difficult often to borrow from different designers because they will prefer to do their own exhibitions or they're very carefully vetting what's the idea of the exhibition. But this was, I think, really a spectacular chance to show a wide variety of London fashions from the 1960s to what was then the present. It was also a kind of surreal event because um, Prince Andrew came and so the British Secret Service were there. Jaguar was one of our sponsors and so that was parked outside but people were searching under it for bombs. It was kind of a, an interesting and somewhat fraught evening. <laughs> then one, one of my favorite shows that I did was Gothic Dark Glamour which was hugely influenced by Amy De La Haye's show about subculture from the sidewalk to the catwalk at the V&A, and was also hugely influenced by Judith Clark's show, Malign Muses, When Fashion Turns Back. 
because subculture looked at the influence of subcultural styles on high fashion, and then Judith's show transformed the whole paradigm of how you do a fashion exhibition. And I came home from seeing Malign Muses and called up a full staff meeting and said, we have to do everything differently now. This is, we have to really engage with the mise-en-scene and make it something exciting and gripping. We did have one um, member of staff who claimed that if I put a coffin like this in the show, someone would die, but we managed to get through the exhibition without anyone on staff dying. <laughs> Another of those national shows was Japan Fashion Now, which I had seen a number of shows about Japanese fashion as art, focusing on the 1980s, focusing on Comme des Garçons, Yoji, and uh, Issei Miyake. And those were very important shows, um, but I felt that since Tokyo was one of the greatest fashion cities in the world, it would be nice to find out about Japan fashion in the decades since the 80s. And so this was a show that I really loved working on, which looked at menswear, looked at different street styles as well as high fashion, even looked at cosplay. And then a show that won a lot of prizes was one that my colleague Fred Dennis first suggested to me. We were out for lunch and he said, wouldn't it be cool to do a show about the influence of gays and fashion? So we went and did a queer history of fashion from the closet to the catwalk, where we looked at what turned out to be 300 years of LGBTQ influence on fashion. So this is, gives some sense of some of the range of the shows we've done. And now I'd like to ask Colleen Hill to come up and give us um, her take on some of the many other shows that have been done at the museum at FIT. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I actually want to start by talking about the first exhibition that I co-curated with Valerie, which was Shoe Obsession from 2013. And this was a really fun show for me that was based on Valerie's observation that really extravagant shoes had replaced handbags as the it accessory of the 21st century. And this show was entirely devoted to contemporary footwear. So I think maybe the oldest shoe we had in the show was from 2005 or 2006, and we went all the way up to the current season. And what we pointed out was that shoes were increasingly expensive and also increasingly difficult to wear. And they had these really, really high heels. They were really extravagant and kind of lavishly designed. And so what we ended up doing was presenting the shoes as singles. So they were on these lovely little plinths. You could see them in the round. We were thinking of them almost as sculptural objects. And um, one of the things we really pride ourselves on here at the museum at FIT is that all of our tours, public and private, are given by curatorial staff. So I gave a lot of tours of the show. And I would take people through and they would say, well, these shoes are beautiful, but none of them are wearable. And I would say, well, they're wearable, but they're not walkable. You just, you know, you can put them on your foot and they look great. 
Uh, and this is a close-up. Um, we had about 150 shoes total, uh, but five of our plexi cases were devoted to women who collected shoes. And sometimes they didn't even wear these shoes. They simply liked to have them in their closets. Um, but this is a close-up of a case of shoes that was uh, lent to us by the jewelry designer Lynn Ban. This is Prada's beautiful flame shoe, uh, the original style from 2012, which has since been reissued. Uh, this show was curated by Patricia Mears. It was called Elegance in an Age of Crisis, Fashions of the 1930s. And what I really admired about this show is that Patricia took this really beautiful, elegant, sophisticated decade in fashion and took a much broader approach. So it wasn't just about the really beautiful bias-cut gowns that we all may be familiar with, but she looked at things like daywear and leisure wear and sportswear. I love the fact that you could look at swimsuits from this era and think, oh, we could actually finally swim in something that's considered a swimsuit. Um, and most importantly, she also included quite a bit of menswear in this show. So she really broadened the idea of what I thought of as 1930s fashion and hopefully did that for our visitors as well. This is an image from Arielle Elia's show called Faking It, Originals, Counter, uh, excuse me, Originals, Copies, and Counterfeits. And I loved how Arielle made me think about the fashion industry in depth and quite a bit differently than I had before. We hear about things like fake designer handbags all the time, but it's usually kind of a surface observation. And what Arielle did was, in some cases such as here, pair the original garment with their copies. In this instance, the original uh, is a Chanel suit that's placed more in the foreground, and the copy is a Jean-Louis Schur, which is placed in the background. And you can see just quite obviously some of the differences. So for example, the Chanel has two sets of pockets on the jacket, the collar looks a little better, um, but Arielle also very meticulously looked at these objects, uh, worked with our photographer Eileen Costa to take really detailed photos, and for things like these suits, for Chanel bags, for shoes, everyone got a real sense of the sometimes in almost indiscernible differences between copies and originals. But she also took this story a bit broader, and I loved this particular scene um, with Yves Saint Laurent's famous uh, 1965 dress from his so-called Mondrian collection in the center of the three objects there. Um, and flanking the original are two copies of that look. But if you look to your right, there is a Sally Victor Mondrian looking hat in a case that actually dates to a couple of years before Saint Laurent's collection. Um, so it's very interesting to think about who was inspired by whom, what is a copy versus something that was just inspired. And of course, we can think of all of these as being copies of Piet Mondrian's grid paintings. And speaking of pairings, uh, the exhibition uh, Yves Saint Laurent Holston, Fashioning the 1970s, was co-curated by Patricia Mears and Emma McClendon. And I had never thought about these two designers' work in tandem, so this was really quite an interesting show for me to explore. Um, here, Patricia and Emma 
put together a Saint Laurent ensemble and the Holston, that's the Holston is a blue ensemble, and showed how in many cases these two superstar designers of the 1970s had similar aesthetics. And it was really when you looked more closely, particularly at the construction of these clothes, that you could see the difference. So Saint Laurent was obviously French and a trained couturier, so his construction tended to be much more elaborate. Holston was actually looking to make clothes that were much more fluid and devoid of structure. Um, he tried to eliminate zippers and buttons and all those types of closures. So it was really, again, this type of connoisseurship and looking really closely at fashion. And this was the gallery that these objects were placed in, designed by Kimberly Ackert. It was this really beautiful, gleaming white cube. But what is so special about this is that Kim devised these cases that were these kind of interlocking squares and circles. These squares were meant to represent the geometry of Holston's work, whereas the circles represented the softer lines and curves of Saint Laurent's work. Uh, Fairytale Fashion was a show that I put together in 2016, and I hope Valerie doesn't mind me speaking a bit to her generosity when I talk about this show, uh, because essentially I had the title for it before I had anything else. <laughs> and I had a, a meeting with her and I said, I'd really like to put together this show called Fairytale Fashion. And she said, that sounds great. So I had to, of course, then figure out how the heck to do this thing, and I ended up uh, starting by reading old, good translations of old literary fairy tales and immediately understood what it was I wanted to do. Uh, I was reading an early version of Sleeping Beauty. Of course, Sleeping Beauty had been asleep for a hundred years and she wakes up and the prince looks at her and says, oh, she's so beautiful, but she's wearing this really old-fashioned dress like something my grandmother would wear. And I thought, this is it. I have to look for these descriptions of dress and tales. And so I ended up illustrating 15 classic fairy tales using fashion. And when clothing is mentioned in these tales, it often represents some kind of transformation or power or privilege. It has some kind of connotation about a particular character. Um, and so this instance, this was one of the first uh, sets that you saw walking into the gallery. It's, of course, Little Red Riding Hood, one of the most sartorial, uh, sartorially um, distinct tales. And and we included everything here from an 18th century cloak to, on the very end, a 2015 Comme des Garçons ensemble that had a big red riding hood. Um, so I also wanted to play with the idea of time and space, because usually these tales are not set in a particular time period or um, location. <clears throat> Excuse me. This exhibition. Uh, Black Fashion Designers was co-curated by Ariely Laya and Elizabeth Way. Um, Liz will be speaking a little bit later, uh, so I won't linger too long on this work, but this was a particularly, thank you, uh, important exhibition because although black fashion designers have had an incredible impact on the fashion industry, they're really underrepresented by the fashion media. And Arielle and uh, Liz made the point that there's often, uh, fashion media is often looking for 
for this kind of singular black style, which of course does not exist. And so in this image uh, on your left is an ensemble by Patrick Kelly, who's an American-born designer uh, working in Paris. And his leggings are printed to look like Ghanaian uh, kente cloth. And then on the far end uh, is an ensemble by a contemporary ensemble by Christy Brown, who is a designer who lives and works in Ghana. So I really love this kind of narrative they created. And this is a beautiful Scott Berry dress from the 1970s that was part of a section called The Rise of the Black Designer, and it included designers such as Berry and Stephen Burroughs and Fabrice. Uh, and this, also, uh, this dress also happened to be donated by the pioneering black model Naomi Sims. <clears throat> Paris Refashion 1957 to 1968 was a show that I uh, put together a couple of years ago based on my enduring love for 60s fashion. I've been obsessed with 60s fashion since childhood. And one of the things that I noticed often is that when we think of 60s fashion, we always think of London. And this is not to say that London wasn't incredibly important to this time period, but what I wanted to show was that Paris fashion was still incredibly important as well, and in fact, Paris had its own youth fashion movement and music, etc. Uh, so this dress is from Emmanuel Kahn. Uh, she was strictly a ready-to-wear designer, very young, very hip and edgy. And this kind of clothing is actually quite hard to find. It's really rare in museum collections. It's not really the type of thing that was kept. Um, we happened to get this donated by a woman who had worked at Mademoiselle magazine. And we had several really important early ready-to-wear pieces such as this that I wanted to highlight. But the uh, main gallery was meant to sort of evoke a Parisian streetscape. And in this space, I wanted to really juxtapose things in a way that kind of made people look at the labels to see what was what and who was who. And so I mixed up all of my ready-to-wear and couture, old designers, young designers, new and old labels, and really showed how there was this kind of interesting fluidity and influence from ready-to-wear uh, designers to couturiers and uh, the other way around. And so by the end of the decade, we see couturiers such as Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Cardin and André Carrège also designing really hip, ready-to-wear lines. This exhibition, Force of Nature, was curated by Melissa Mera. And I particularly love this show because I am absolutely horrid at science. And this was all about the relationship between fashion and the natural world. And I felt that it was explained so clearly and so well. Um, and it really showed how uh, multidisciplinary fashion can be and how we can view fashion objects through a completely different lens. Um, so Melissa had things like bird calls in the exhibition in her section entitled the aviary. It was a really clever way to meld uh, fashion and science in uh, means that I hadn't really seen before. Patricia Mears's recent exhibition, uh, Expedition, Fashions from the Extreme, really made me think about where we're getting our inspiration for high fashion from. So for example, those of you who may have worn a puffer coat into the conference today, um, you have mountain climbers to thank for that. Um, this is the kind of garment that was originally made for extreme environments and then adapted to high fashion. And that's what this entire exhibition focused on. And I thought it was a really 
unique way to look at these influences. As you can see, the sets here were really evocative. We had things like deep sea diving and, of course, mountain climbing, exploration in the Arctic. But by far, I think everyone's favorite section was the spaceship. So it showed that uh, the idea of expedition does not end on land. It, in fact, extend to, extends to space. And uh, as you can see and probably imagine for yourselves, there have been a lot of fashions inspired by space travel and the space age. So we had things like Hussein Chalayan, but also uh, more historic garments by Andre Karej and Paco Raban, really speaking to this idea of futuristic fashion and what that might look like. And uh, then I'll conclude here with an exhibition that was recently curated by Emma McClendon called The Body, Fashion, and Physique. And this was just such an important exhibition to really expand the narrative of what a fashion exhibition can be and what it can include. So Emma explored the idea of the perfect body throughout fashion, the ideal silhouette. But she went well beyond the silhouette show and spoke of things like standardized sizing and plus size fashion and designing for differently abled people and really showed us how expensive that narrative of fashion studies or fashion history can be. And we here at the museum at FIT, of course, believe that fashion can be enjoyed by everyone, and I feel that this show really spoke to that. So on that note, I thank you all so much for being here today, and I'm very much looking forward to our other presenters. Thank you. Thank you.